how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Hebrews Part 1. Well, now, opinion on the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews as it should be called, is very divided. Some find it one of the most difficult letters of the New Testament. There are reasons for that. It's a very Jewish letter and it's really appreciated by Jewish readers, but uh, Gentile readers, it's just a different world of thinking. We just never think about sacrifices and altars and priesthood because we've never had to. And it does need familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, especially with the book of Leviticus, but that's the book that most people get stuck in when they try and read the Bible right through, at least Christians trying to read it right through. Incidentally, we're just doing a series right now called Unlocking the Old Testament and Leviticus was the one we began with. I was dreading it, but actually it proved the best of the lot and we just exploded in praise at the end. But you really need to know Leviticus to understand Hebrews and since most get stuck in Leviticus and don't get through it, Hebrews is also a bit difficult and it uses arguments that don't really touch the modern mind arguments about angels. Well, usually I'm afraid today people joke about arguing about how many angels you can get on the head of a pin and things like this, um, and that kind of argument doesn't click with us. The Greek of Hebrews is very complicated. In fact, it's the best Greek of the New Testament. It's nearer to classical Greek. You may not know it, but the New Testament was not written in classical Greek. That was the Greek spoke by scholars and professors. It was written in what's called Koine Greek. We would call it Cockney Greek. And it's interesting that God wanted his word in the language of the street and not the language of the university. But Hebrews is jolly good Greek and it gets nearer to the classical language than any of the other. And even in English, the language is fairly uh, refined and fairly sophisticated. So there are many reasons why people do find it a difficult book. Some people you talk to say, oh, this is the most delightful book of all, and they just love it and they revel in it, usually for one of three reasons. One is for that magnificent chapter on faith. Everybody knows Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, and all that. It's, a magn it's like a Westminster Abbey. You know, you go walking around Westminster Abbey looking at all the famous people and it's just like taking a walk through a mausoleum like that and looking back into the past, seeing these great heroes of faith. So it's a, it's a good epistle on faith and most people feel somewhat relieved to get to chapter 11 and say, I understand this bit and this registers with me. Others find it a very helpful book on the whole question of how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate and indeed it tells you what to do with the law of Moses. It, it's very clever in the way it unfolds the relationship of our Christian faith to all the ritual of the temple in the old days. And then others love it because of what it tells us about Christ. Those who love Jesus love Hebrews because it really does throw a new light on him that no other writer of the New Testament does. 
the favourite word that he uses is the word better. And if you've read that, uh, or superior in some versions, but the word better is a key word and it comes all the way through. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And he doesn't say best, though that is true, because he's making a comparison all the time. Jesus is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than all these others. He's better. But why should he write a letter to show that Jesus is better than everyone else? Well, now both these opinions, that it's a difficult book or a delightful book, are really both extreme opinions and both of them miss the main point of the letter. And the real key to Hebrews is why was it written? And though it's a little complicated to find the answer, once you've found it, the whole letter opens up. Until you know that answer, frankly, it's a mixture. And there are parts of the letter that don't seem to fit and other parts. and It doesn't hang together. But once you've got that key, everything in it makes sense. Just every sentence fits that key. So let's try and find the key. Why was it written? What was the purpose, the aim, the objective? And the first problem we have is that we know very little about the background of it. We don't even know who wrote it. One great scholar called this the riddle of the New Testament. We don't like riddles, like to know the answers to riddles. Well, who wrote it? I haven't a clue. There have been all sorts of guesses. Some old authorised King James versions used to say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. That was sheer guesswork. I don't think Paul wrote it, it's not his style, it's not his language, just doesn't fit. Others have said it might be Barnabas. Another candidate is Stephen, or Silas, or Apollos. One suggestion is that it was Priscilla, but because it was a woman writing, she thought she'd better not have put her name to it. That's a kind of modern reading back, I think, into it. And ultimately, I have to say, with the great Christian Oregon of Alexandria, God alone knows. So that's not going to help us. We don't know who wrote it. So can we come from another angle and say, well, where was it sent to? And here again, there's nothing in the letter that says to the saints in such and such a place. There's no address on it except just to the Hebrews. So where is it sent to? There is one clue, however. There have been many suggestions. It was sent to Alexandria, to Antioch, to Jerusalem, to Ephesus. But there is one clue right at the end. The writer says, everyone from Italy sends greetings. And from that, I think it's a sensible deduction to say it was sent to Italy. If you say everybody from Italy sends their love, then surely you're writing to Italy. And at that time, surely it must be again the church in Rome, the one we were talking about in the letter to the Romans. And yet, clearly, it's a bit later because certain things have happened which hadn't happened when Paul wrote to Rome. So I'm assuming it's to the Christians in Rome and to that half of the church that was the Jewish half. It's clearly to Christian believers and yet it's addressed to Hebrews. So here is a clue. It is addressed or sent to the Jewish half of the church in Rome. Now, why would a letter be needed for half the church? 
Well, let's feel our way into it a little further. Clearly the first leaders of the church have died. That indicates that it's a bit later because the writer says, remember your leaders, just bring them back to mind, the first ones who led you and so they're already dead and gone. So that's a generation gone, so it is a bit later. And yet we can say a later date for it because clearly the temple and its sacrifices are still going because he talks about them and not in the past tense. So clearly it's before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and sacrifices ceased. So this is the kind of detective work that begins to narrow it down, at least in time. So it was after Paul wrote to Rome and before AD 70. What happened in between there? And the answer is a man came to the imperial throne called Nero. And now we begin to understand a bit of the background. Nero, like Hitler, did a lot of good things in the beginning. If you read the life of Hitler, you'll find that he saved Germany from unemployment and from inflation. He built the autobahns, the great roads. He it was who ordered the Volkswagen Beetle as a people's car. That's what Volkswagen means. And he did a number of good things for Germany in the beginning. That's why people followed him. In the same way, when you read Nero, he did a lot of good things for Rome in the beginning and one of the reasons he was a good emperor at the beginning was that he listened to other people's advice. But there came a point where Nero got too big for his boots and he stopped listening to other people and he became a dictator. Exactly what happened to Hitler. Seems as if power goes to their heads. And that was when he began to get grandiose rebuilding schemes, just like Hitler who wanted to rebuild Berlin with his architect Speer and Nero wanted to rebuild Rome and he had big ideas for pulling everything down and building the grandest buildings that had ever been built and he became a megalomaniac. And the people who began to suffer more than anybody else were the Christians. Tomorrow morning when we discuss 1 Peter, I'm going to tell you how the Christians came in for trouble under Nero, but I'll leave that till we'd look at 1 Peter. All I'm going to say now is that the pressure was now on Christians. In the letter to Romans, Paul's letter, there's no trace really of persecution. There is immorality in Rome that they have to fight, but there isn't yet a direct persecution, but in the letter to the Hebrews there is. And there's one little section which tells you exactly what kind of persecution they were already getting. They had none of them yet been martyred. The letter says you've not yet resisted to blood. You've not yet shed your blood for your faith. So there was no martyrdom yet, which means we're about the middle of Nero's reign. But the kind of pressure they were getting was this, they were getting their property attacked. They were getting their windows smashed. They were getting their doors painted. And uh, so they were getting property. Also, they were losing their possessions that their possessions were being confiscated. They were also, and this was the most severe, they had already, some of them, been in prison. And that's why there's an emphasis towards the end of the letter, visit those who are in prison. So we can build up a picture. Nobody had yet been killed, but they had been in prison and Timothy had been in prison and released. 
their property was being attacked and they were losing their possessions and indeed their homes. So it was getting pretty tough to be a Christian. It still wasn't costing them their lives, but it was costing them pretty well everything else. Now, of course, this was happening to all the believers, whether they were Gentiles or Jews. Then why was this letter only written to the Jewish believers? And the answer is really very simple and explains the whole letter. The Jews had an escape from suffering, whereas the Gentile believers didn't. Now, how could the Jewish believers get out of the trouble? by going back to the synagogue. For you see, at this time Christianity was illegal but Judaism was legal. Or to give you the official Latin title, Christianity was a religio licita but Christianity was a religio, sorry, Judaism was a religio licita but Christianity was a religio illicita illegal, legal. In other words, the synagogues were registered, but the church was an underground church. And we've had the same thing until recently behind the Iron Curtain. There were official registered churches, mainly Orthodox, a few Baptist, and there were underground churches. It didn't mean they were under the ground. It meant they were unregistered and outlawed and therefore liable to be arrested and punished. And whenever there's persecution, I'm afraid Christians tend to divide between those who compromise and get official registration and those who don't and suffer and are outlawed. Now then, in this situation, Gentile believers had no way of escape, but Jewish believers could say, well, I'm off back to the synagogue and they and their families would be out of persecution. And they could say, but I'm going back to the same God. It's still the God and Father of Jesus that I'll be worshipping. But the cost of doing it, the only way for them to get back into the Jewish synagogue and be safe was that the synagogue demanded that they publicly deny their faith in Jesus. Now you see the dilemma. Try and feel it if you and your family, you're Jewish, and now you've heard about Jesus, you believe he's the Messiah, you've joined the church and now your children are being persecuted at school and your windows are being smashed and you're losing your property. And if you take your family back into the synagogue, they'll be safe. And it's still the same God, isn't it? It's the same God of the Bible. But you'd have to say in front of the synagogue, I deny that Jesus is the Messiah and then they'll have you back. Now, do you get the dilemma? And many parents, for the sake of their children, were going back into the synagogue. Now, once you realize that's the position and that this was the problem in the church and the Jewish believers, the Hebrews in that church, were drifting back into the synagogue one by one because of the pressure that was coming on them. And this author, whoever he or she was, we've no idea, but the only thing I know about him is that he was a sailor because he uses a lot of nautical language. He says, don't pull up your anchors, don't drift away, don't lower your sails. Vivid language. So he's obviously a sailor, but beyond that I don't know who he was, but he's saying, don't go back 
to the synagogue. Stay right where you are. And he says at the end, I have written you this short letter of exhortation. Well, it's certainly a letter of exhortation, but it's not very short. He says, Brethren, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. Now, an exhortation is very practical. He is not trying to teach them doctrine. He's not trying to give them a devotional view of Christ. His whole aim is to stop this drift back to the synagogue. And everything he says from beginning to end is aiming at that problem. And boy, does he bring out the big guns. He really throws everything at them. He appeals to them, he warns them, he speaks tenderly, he speaks strongly, he uses every argument he can because he spells out the cost of doing it. And in a word, he says you're going to lose your salvation if you do that. Now that's the overall burden of the letter. But he uses every appeal he can to stop the rot. And these Jewish believers, he tells them, don't stop attending. Don't neglect the public meetings of the church. Don't stay home. Don't drift away. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't go back to your old religion. Because it's not just from Christ that you'd be turning away, you'd be turning away from God. And that is very, very serious. So he didn't see it as a doctrinal exposition. And yet many people I've heard expound this letter as a doctrinal thing, as a piece of Christology as it's called. That's the Logos of Christ, uh, the study of Christ. So what is an exhortation? My Oxford English Dictionary says this, it is to admonish urgently. It is to urge someone to a course of action. And so the whole letter is urging people to a particular course of action. And the, the appeal is both negative and positive. And I can sum up the whole letter in two exhortations. Please don't go back, but do go on. And everything in the letter is related to one or other of those appeals, those exhortations, those urging to action. Don't go back, do go on. The one thing that comes clearly out of this letter is that the one thing you can't do is stand still. And I'm afraid that is true of the Christian life. If you don't go on, you go back. And if you go back, you stop going on. You cannot stand still. You've got to keep moving. Anybody here a speleologist? Anybody know what that means? Yes, potholer to you. Are you a potholer? Used to be. Well now, somebody died in the potholes of Yorkshire not long ago. A speleologist died. When they found the body, this is what the coroner said at the verdict, if only he had kept moving, he'd be alive today. But what he did was he sat down and stayed in one place and hypothermia set in. He said, if only he'd kept moving, he'd be alive today. That's the message of the letter to the Hebrews. Keep moving. Go on. Don't go back, but go on, go on, go on. And you get that coming out again and again. If you underline any language of those two exhortations, you'll find you've underlined almost every chapter all the way through. And he 
in a lovely way, identifies himself with them. He doesn't say, now you stop going back but go on. He says, let us go on. Puts himself in with them, stands alongside them. In fact, he calls himself a paraclete, which is the same title given to the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, the standby. And what he's saying is, come on, let's go on, come on. And he's, it's almost as if he's taking them by the hand or by the arm and saying, come on, don't give up now, come on, come on. Like a climber going back for someone at the back of the rope and says, come on, we're going to make it, come on. It's a very encouraging letter, but it's also a very severe letter. So he warns and he pleads, come on, let's make it. Now, the pattern of the letter is very interesting. He's alternating constantly between exposition and exhortation. He's constantly arguing and appealing, and the proportion of the argument and the appeal changes as we go through the letter. Now, I've only put on, so as not to make it more complicated, the first and the last part. In chapters 1 and 2, you've got a, a long argument and a short appeal. But gradually as you go through, you get shorter arguments and longer appeal, shorter argument, longer appeal, until the end where you get in chapter 11, that's 11, sorry, in that should be chapter 11, sorry, chapter 11, 1 to 40, not 1, 1 to 40, chapter 11, 11, 1 to 40 is a very short exposition and then there's a very long appeal in chapters 12 and 13. So he's got more argument and less appeal at the beginning and less argument and more appeal at the end. So he, he moves from argument to appeal. That's why the earlier part is a little more difficult to understand than the latter part because we understand appeals better than we understand arguments. All right? So that's the pattern. And this appeal, let us, let us, let us, let us lay aside every handicap and keep running looking to Jesus. Let us go on, come on. Let's go for the finish, let's go for the prize, come on. Let us occurs 13 times in the whole letter, but eight times in this last section. So there's a great build-up to this personal appeal. And anybody who can read it untouched must really have a hard heart. So let's now look at the structure of the letter and see how it builds up. He starts negatively and he builds up to positive. And in the negative section, chapters 1 to 10, which concentrates on the don't go back appeal, which is the negative appeal, he is drawing a sharp contrast between the Old and the New Testament, between Judaism and Christianity. And he's saying, now do you realise what you're going back to? And his argument can be put very simply. You're riding in a Rolls Royce now. Do you want to go back to a Model T Ford? That's what he's arguing. Do some of you wives want to go back to a coal range to cook on now that you've got a microwave? Would you do that? Do you want to go back to heating the water in a kettle and pouring it into a tin bath in front of the hearth to have your bath? I started that way on the farm. Do you want to go back to that or do you want to stay in your jacuzzi? <laughs> See? When you look at all the modern things in the kitchen, 
would you choose to go back to cooking on a campfire all, all the time? Who would choose to do such a silly thing when you've got the latest? And yet that's what he's saying. He's saying, you're going back to a far inferior position. You're leaving the better behind. How can you do this? And that's why he argues, first of all in chapters 1 to 6, that having the Son of God is a million times better than having servants of God, which is all the Jews have. You've got the Son. Why do you go back to the servants? And he goes through a number of servants. He starts with angels. Actually, that should be up there, but never mind. It's, it's to get it all on the card, no doubt. First of all, he says, the Son is far better than the angels. They are just ministering servants. Do you want to go back to the stage where the only contact you've got with heaven is through angels? You've got the Son. You can't get closer to the Father than that. Then he says, what about the prophets? Well, the prophets were great people, but you want to go back to the... I'm sorry, it should be this way round. My apologies to whoever did this. His first argument at the beginning of chapter 1 is, the Son is better than all the prophets. Then his second argument is, the Son is better than the angels. Then he goes back to the people of the Old Testament who were called apostles, namely Moses and Joshua, the pioneers who brought them into the Promised Land. But he said, you've got the Son. Why go back to Moses and Joshua? They were just servants in the household of God. You've got the Son. And then he says, what about the priests? Aaron and sons were the family firm of priests. And you've got the Son. You had to go through a priest to God before. Now you can go straight to the Son. It's a powerful argument, isn't it? It's saying, why go back to that when you've got someone who's far better for you than all, all of them? That's what they would be doing if they went back to the synagogue. They would never be able to talk about Jesus again. They'd be cut off from the sun. They'd have to go back to the prophets. By the way, you realise why this is so difficult to convert Muslims? Because you're telling them to go backwards from the one they consider the latest and the best prophet to the one who's not so good, Jesus. See the problem? That's why it is so difficult. They accept Jesus as a prophet, but not the latest and the best. And for a Muslim at first, he thinks you're telling him to go back, to go back to an inferior leader. Well, of course, they're wrong in that. He's not inferior because Muhammad, whatever he was, was not the Son of God and never claimed to be but we have the Son who's better than any prophet, false or true. Now then, having argued that the Son is better than the servants, he then changes his argument and in chapter 7 to 10 we have a remarkable argument that the substance is better than the shadows. Now then, have you ever read Daddy Longlegs or seen the film? A favourite romance that, isn't it? Real women's magazine story. Rags to Riches. Now, he, it's the story of a little orphan girl in an orphanage and uh, she knows that there is a wealthy man who provides for the orphanage and provides for the children. And one day she sees his shadow on a wall and it's a, an elongated shadow with tremendously long legs because of the position of the light. And she calls the shadow Daddy Longlegs. 
And, and for years she dreams of this daddy long legs shadow. And then one day she meets him and falls in love and he falls in love. Oh, it's, you know, it's a real, you know, five Kleenex tissue story. But once she's got him, she stops thinking about the shadow altogether because the substance is better than the shadow. What would you think of her going back to the shadow on the wall and trying to kiss the shadow? How crazy when you've got him. Now you see, in the Old Testament we have an awful lot of shadows of Jesus. Uh, some people call them types. Have you heard the word typology? Types. Well, Hebrews calls them shadows. I much prefer that word. It's as if Jesus cast his shadow back into the Old Testament, but a shadow is always distorted, never gives you quite the clear picture the way the light is. I don't know if I'm casting a shadow. Yes, I am down there. There's Daddy Shortlegs down there. <laughs> but you see, the shadow is only a shadow. You can tell something about me from the shadow, but not very much. You can describe something, but not you, if you know me. You know, if you'd only ever seen that, you would know I was real. You know a little about me, but what's a shadow? Now then, when you read the Old Testament, you're actually reading about the shadows of Jesus all the way. There's a concept for you. There's a key. When you read the book of Leviticus, you're looking at Jesus' shadow. Now that's a key that really unlocks it. When you look at the sacrifices, that's the shadow of the cross, the shadow of the sacrifice he made for sin. When you look at the animals that were sacrificed, it's the shadow of Jesus. The lamb, the Passover lamb, is a shadow of Jesus. It tells you a little about Jesus, but oh, we don't need to look at the Lamb anymore. We've got Him. We've got the substance, or in typology language, we've got the antitype of the type. But that sounds a bit clumsy, doesn't it? But shadow of the substance, we understand that. We've got the real thing now. And the shadows of Jesus you can see in the priesthood, you can see in the covenant, you can see in the sacrifices but the substance is so much better than the shadows. The shadow was actually the priesthood of Aaron and sons, but Jesus is much more clearly shadowed in the order of Melchizedek, that, that mysterious priest and king combined who reigned over Jerusalem and gave bread and wine to Abraham. What a shadow! And so the Old Testament is full of Jesus' shadows. Is that a new thought to you? probably not new but a new way of putting it, but it really enables you to look back into the Old Testament and see so much shadow of Jesus. Just one example. How old do you think Isaac was when Abraham sacrificed him? Have you ever thought about that? You remember when Abraham nearly killed him on the altar? What would you think he was? Twelve? Eighteen? Do you know every Jew will tell you the truth? He says he was in his early thirties. And every Jewish picture of that shows a full-grown man who could easily have overcome his dear old dad but submitted to him. And it's because we've divided Genesis into chapters that we miss the very next in incident in the next chapter which talks of Sarah's death and tells us how old she was when she died and how old Isaac was. It's a much clearer shadow of Jesus when you realise that Isaac was around 33. 
And when you realize that that mount, mountain, Mount Maria, was the very mountain on which Jesus died on a cross, and then when you see that God said, stop, an angel stopped Abraham, Isaac must not be killed, and when, when Abraham turned round, there was a ram <coughs> with its head encircled in thorns. Do you see that shadow? That was what was to be sacrificed on that mountain. And years, centuries later, the Lamb of God had his head caught in the thorns and was offered on Mount Maria. Shadows. And from those shadows you can look forward to the cross. The shadows only tell you so much. Why go back to shadows? But he also says, why go back to the old covenant? Because now you're in a new covenant and it's far better than the old one. It's a covenant based on forgiveness and forgettingness. I think the most amazing miracle is that God, when he forgives, he forgets. Never brings it up again. And I remember uh, years ago, I don't know if you would remember this, Ruth, but uh, at the end of a service in uh, Millmead Centre in Guildford, everybody had gone home, but there was a little old lady sitting in the church all by herself and she was weeping her heart out. And I went and sat by her and I said, whatever's the trouble? She said, years ago I did the most terrible, terrible thing. And she said, if my family knew about it, they'd never speak to me again. And if my friends knew about it, I'd have no friends. And she said, for 30 years I've been asking God to forgive me and he never has. I said, oh, you poor dear. The first time you asked him, he forgave it and he forgot it. And for 30 years he hasn't known what you're talking about. She said, I don't believe that. I took her through some scriptures. I will make a new covenant with you and your sins I will remember no more. It took 20 minutes to convince her that God had forgotten all about it. And she got up and I couldn't believe my eyes, she danced around the church. There she was, she was about 70, she lived up the Farnham Road and she was dancing around the church for sheer joy. I like that kind of dancing. You know, wasn't the charismatic two-step, it was really <laughs> It really was dancing for sheer joy that God had forgotten it. And you know, we need to remember that when God forgives, he forgets. <laughs> the trouble is we can't forget it, that's why we can't forgive ourselves. You never will forgive yourself because you can never forget it. It's why it's so hard to forgive others because you can't forget what they did or said. But God says, your sins I will remember no more. That's the new covenant and you're going to go back into the old covenant? Surely not. But you see, when, when the safety of your family is concerned, that's a big pressure, very big pressure. He's really pulling out the big guns, isn't he? And then what about the sacrifice? He said, you realise from now on you'll have to repeat your sacrifices. Every day, every week, every year you're going to have to bring more and more sacrifices and you've got the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice. You see, the only reason you didn't have to bring some ducks or pigeons or lambs or goats with you so that I could cut their throats on this platform and the whole place could be covered in blood and look like an abattoir, why didn't we do this? Do you realise God demands that? You can't be forgiven without blood being shed. So why did you not bring animals and birds with you? Because you don't need to. It's been done now. The blood of Jesus 
is all you'll ever need. That's Hebrews. Now why go back to all the old sacrifices? See, it's crazy. Well, that's quite a powerful argument. He's not doing it to give us a devotional picture of Christ. That's not really the point of Hebrews. He's doing it because will you give up what is better for what is not so good? You're going to go backwards in your spiritual life, back to the old Model T Ford and you're riding in a Rolls. Why are you doing it? Real appeal to their common sense. But that's the negative side. We now turn to the positive side in the second half of the letter. And here, where here he draws a contrast between the Old and the New Testament, here he emphasises the continuity between the Old and the New, because there are good things in the Old that are not obsolete. Some things in the Old are now left behind, but other things follow straight through. And if there's one thing that goes straight through, it's faith. And I tell you, when you considered how little opportunity and resources the Old Testament heroes had, their faith leaves us standing. And we need to remember this. They didn't have any of the revelation we have in Christ. They had so little. They didn't have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And yet those men went on believing even though they never saw what they believed in. And we need to catch up with their faith. So we have this kind of double relationship to the Old Testament. There are some things we leave behind because they're shadows and we now have the substance, but there are some things we need to emulate, some things we need to follow, some things we have a long way to catch up with them, and particularly in this area of faith. And he goes through group after group in the Old Testament. First group, Abel, Enoch and Noah. Second group, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They are three keys, the patriarchs. And God himself has tied his name to those three human names. He will always be known as the God of Avraham, Isaac and Yaakov. That's his name. Isn't it amazing that our God has tied himself to three people forever? I am the God of Avraham, Isaac and Yaakov those three generations. Then he moves on to Joseph and Moses, then to Joshua and Rahav. Now there's the first woman in this list and she was a prostitute and she was a Gentile, <coughs> but she staked her whole future on God's people. Remember she hid the spies in Jericho and the spies went back to tell Joshua they're quaking with fear in that city of Jericho and a prostitute saved our lives and we told her to hang a scarlet thread out of her window so that when we take the town we must keep her family safe. And of the whole town that family survived. A prostitute's faith, tremendous faith, and she is held up as an example of faith not only in the letter to the Hebrews but as we shall see in the letter of James. And she appears in the genealogy of Jesus for she was the great-great-grandmother of David. Great-great-great. I forget just how many, but there she is. And she's put in the genealogy of Jesus. I think that's great. And then going through them, well, 
I must begin to close. Time has gone again. Oh, isn't time an enemy? Well, I want you to notice one thing, two things about this list of believers. Number one, their faith was shown in what they did, not in what they said, but in what they did. By faith Noah built an ark. By faith Abraham lived in a tent for the rest of his life. By faith Moses did this. By faith Gideon Samson did that. Show me your faith by your works. See, real faith shows in action. The second thing I would just say, and then we'll pick this up in the next talk. Little verse in the middle of chapter 11, which always excites me. It says, all these were still living by faith when they died, yet they never saw what they believed in. Isn't that wonderful? Faith for them wasn't just a one-off decision at a crusade. Faith for them was you keep on believing till you die, even if you never see it. What an example. They didn't see it. We've seen it. And yet some of us can't even keep on believing. <laughs> Isn't that tragic? These were all still living by faith when they died and they're waiting for us to catch up with them. Well, we'll have a little break there and then we'll come back and look at it all in more detail. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.